Well, it is good to worship with you today. It's good to open God's Word with you today. If you're new with us, we do expository preaching here. That means take a passage of Scripture and open it up, explain it, apply it. And usually that's through books of the Bible. So we'll go through a book of the Bible like we've done with Luke or Ephesians or Jonah. And now we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I've entitled today's sermon, Striving and Toiling Under the Sun, as we look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. I've already learned much from my study of Ecclesiastes, and I pray that we would all continue to learn from this, to learn not to make the same mistakes that Solomon made, the same mistakes that we make every day, every week, every year, that we would learn wisdom from God through a man who tried it all and wrote about it. So let me read this passage to you, chapter 1, 3 through 11. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. There they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See this? It is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the latter, later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Striving and toiling under the sun. Have you ever been exhausted? Have you ever been weary? Have you ever wondered if the hard work in life will ever end? If you'll ever get to the place where you don't have to do that, whether it's physical labor, mental labor and study, taking care of kids, raising a family, marriage, all the things in life that seem to be right over the horizon. If we could just get to that point, maybe things would be a little calmer, a little more relaxing, a little more enjoyable. And yet each day has its own troubles, even Jesus said. Each day has enough troubles of its own. Well, you might recall it's been uh, about three weeks ago, but we started Ecclesiastes by looking at the first two verses. And we need to look back and remind ourselves who it was who wrote this book, and especially his theme, the theme that he starts the book off with. Because as I said then, if we get that wrong, we'll get many things in the book wrong as well. King Solomon, I made the case, is the writer here, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he wants to preach a message to us. He wants us to learn from his own life. God has inspired him to write down the things that he did, the things that he tried so that we might learn a lesson. And you'll recall that he says in verse 2, 
have a look there. Vanity of vanities. That I said, this is really a difficult word to bring in the English. The Hebrew word is hevel. Hevel. And it's just breath. Vapor. Mist. And it's a key word in this book. It really launches off these first few chapters because he says, hevel of hevels, says the preacher. And he goes on and uses the word five times in verse 2. Breath of breath. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. All is a short-lived, transitory, lacking in substance thing in our life. It's temporary. It's insubstantial. It's ephemeral. It's not permanent. That's the key that he's trying to get across. Under the sun, this life is temporary. It is not permanent. Life, everything associated with it in the world is like a mist. It's full of change. As we learned this morning in our class, we're always changing. And you look up one day, and you're nearing death. Time just seems to get faster and faster and faster for us. We're like a puff of smoke. You blow out a candle, and it's gone. Seeing your breath on a cold day, it's there one moment, then it's gone. Like a whisper in the wind. That is what he's getting across there in verse 2. And it sets the tone for the rest of the book. We need to view this life rightly. We need to be realistic. We need to understand how the world has been created, what the fall did, and what that means for us under the sun. And so because we're just a breath, everything in this world can't be controlled by us. We try, we strive, we want to control things. We have great fear when we can't control things. We worry. We stress, and we work even harder to try and control the world, our surroundings, our life. But it's chasing and striving after wind. It's just chasing and striving after wind, he'll tell us, and when we get to chapter 2. Well, he begins to lay out for us here in verse 3, and he'll go all the way, if you look over to chapter 2, verse 26. This is the first major section of the book. It starts here in 1-3, goes all the way through the end of chapter 2. And he's trying to teach us a message about humanity. He's trying to teach us a message about work and toil and trouble and labor. He's learned from experience. He's tried all these different things in life. And they didn't work out like he expected. They don't work out like we sometimes expect. So he's trying to get across the right view of life. How should we view life then? How should we view our work? Is this passage here, 1, 3 through 11. How should we view our our work, the things we do, the things that we work exhaustively to accomplish? How should we view that knowing that life is like a vapor? That we're all going to come to an end and time will go on without us. So he opens that up. First of all, in verse 3. That's our first main point for today's sermon. He asked a question. He asked a question. What's the point of striving and toiling? What's the point of working so hard for things in life if we're just going to be here for a moment and then gone? And he's just throwing the question out there. This is not didactic teaching like we get in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. Where if a question comes up, there's an immediate answer. It's not like that. We're going to see it's a while before he answers this question directly. But he's saying here, what's in it for me? 
We've all asked that question. Sometimes selfishly and sometimes just pondering. If I take this job, if I do this, if we move here, if I marry this person, sometimes we think, what's in it for me? Why should I work so hard for that? What's the return? What's the point of the things we do in life? So he starts off by saying, what advantage? You see there in verse 3, what advantage? The word means any net gain that allows one to get ahead in life. What's the net gain at the end? Some translations say benefit. Some say gain. That's probably better understanding there. What's the gain of working so hard? What's the return on investment? What's the surplus? The word means what's remaining, the surplus left over at the end. It's not just financial gain either. He's saying, what is the surplus in life that we've worked so hard for and at the end we go to die and what's left over? Now certainly financial gain, financial aspect is part of this. It's a main idea in this. But anything we work for in life, this applies. What's the return on investment? What do I get out of this deal? What advantage does man? Now the Hebrew word for man here is Adam. Adam, the name of our first forefather, our first ancestor. It's a word used in the Old Testament for mankind. What does mankind get out of this? What advantage, what gain does everyone get from working, from toiling? What Solomon's saying here is the question applies to everyone. Not just men, but also women. Not just the old, but also the young. Not just the atheist and the secularist, but also the believer. Wisdom applies to all people. They don't all recognize it. They don't all want to follow it. But it applies to everyone, all mankind. Adam, it's not just to physical labor as you sweat, because he's going to talk about laboring and toiling. It's white-collar jobs. It's everything that you put effort into, that you exert yourself into. He said, what advantage does mankind have in all his work? The word for work here, amal, is used 20 times in Ecclesiastes, more than any other Old Testament book. And it doesn't just mean work. It doesn't mean what you choose to do, maybe mowing the yard today if you want to do that, making a meal. No, it's burdensome labor. Mental anguish also is associated with this word. In fact, in other books of the Bible, it's often just trouble is how it's translated, or anguish. Any toiling, any labor, any anguishing work, it exhausts you mentally, it exhausts you physically, It exhausts you emotionally sometimes. And it's repeated twice in this verse. You don't see it so well in English. But literal translation, what advantage does a man have in all his labor, which he labors under the sun? What man obtains ultimately from all our striving, all our weariness, all our exhaustion? It just seems like nothing. Now it's not, but he's going to take a while to get to that. There is an advantage He'll mention two before we're done with chapter two. But not in this passage today. He's just bringing up the question. He's just wanting us to think. Think about your life. What advantage do you have in all the labor in which you labor? Which he does under the sun. Now this phrase is a key phrase in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. 
and it's important that we understand it. It's used 29 times in Ecclesiastes, the only book that this phrase is used. Three times it'll say under heaven, which is very similar. That's used elsewhere. Or upon the earth three times as well. What is under the sun? We don't have to overthink this. We don't have to inject a lot of theology that some people do into this. It just means life on earth. The sun is in the sky and we're underneath it. It's life on earth. It's everyday life in the here below. In contrast to where God is in the heavenly realm. It's living every day in this life upon the earth. Uh, Dr. Bill Barrick from Master Seminary says the phrase refers to existence on the planet earth where the sun dominates the daytime sky, providing light, warmth, and energy for the sustenance of life. And so by using this phrase, under the sun, Solomon is leaving out any consideration of God and what's eternal. That's not his subject right now. He believes in that. You can read other places where he talks about that. He'll get to God in the book of Ecclesiastes. But for the time being, for the sake of argument, he's just saying, consider life here under the sun. Not eternal life. He's not, he's not teaching here about salvation. He's not talking about sanctification, really. Although if we apply this book, we'll get a more sanctified walk with Christ. But he's just talking about this life. Your everyday life, your everyday work, the things that you toil to do. You see, he's being realistic about the here and now. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not saying, you know, if you just believe in God, your life is going to be a bed of roses. He's saying, look, it's hard. Life isn't always easy under the sun. Sometimes we're striving and toiling, and there doesn't seem like there is any gain. And you wonder why you're doing what you're doing. No, he doesn't sugarcoat it. This world is cursed because of sin. And it's plagued by sin. And there's misery in this life. Go to Genesis with me. Chapter 1. It wasn't like this in the beginning. God created a perfect world. A perfect universe. Genesis 1 and verse 28. Talking of Adam and Eve here. Man and woman. God blessed them. And God said to them. So he's going to give them a list of things to do. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. And subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the sky. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And he goes on to tell them he's given them every plant for food. Skip to verse 31. God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening. There was morning. The sixth day. God created everything perfect. God created everything good. He did not create misery. He did not create pain. He did not create evil. He did not create suffering. But when sin came into the world, go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. When sin came into the world, there were consequences to that. There still is consequences today to sin. But this is the original effect that it had upon our work, upon the things that we do. Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. So God has showed up now in the garden in person. Then he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground's going to be more difficult to work with. Things aren't going to grow as easily. 
and toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. See that word toil? It's not exactly the same word as we have here in Ecclesiastes, but you get the idea. It's going to be hard. Before that, easy. You almost get the idea in the garden that if Adam just threw some seed on the ground as he walked along during the day talking with his wife, that things would just sprout up. Just pick some fruit whenever you want to eat. Now it's going to be hard work. You're going to die if you don't work and eat. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. It's going to be not only hard in the ground, but now you've got to deal with these thorns and thistles, these weeds that grow up amongst your crops. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. It's going to be hard. It's going to take work till you return to the ground. So that's going to happen continually until you die. And then you go back into the ground, into the dust, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, that's an exciting passage, isn't it? You're going to have hard work. The ground is cursed. There's going to be thorns. That, that's not a passage that you hear in a lot of churches. Much of Ecclesiastes is not what you're going to hear. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. That's the way it is. That's the way God has set it up. He set it up good, but due to sin, things have changed. And his creation's still there, but it doesn't work as easily for us as it once did, as it did for Adam and Eve. So the full effect of the fall and God's curse on all the work we try, it makes it tiresome. It makes it exhausting sometimes. You work and you work and you work and you never get ahead. You spend all day working. You work more hours than you need to sometimes. And you just keep trying to get ahead, but you never can get ahead. And then you die, and the earth goes on forever. The earth continues on, but you're gone. Everything you strive for, everything you toil for, what's left over to show for it at the end of the day, at the end of your life? He's trying to get us to think here. Money comes in, money goes out, sometimes faster than we want it to. We think we've got it made, and then suddenly the bank account's empty. Sort of like that old song. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. That's our life sometimes, isn't it? Your retirement account builds and builds, and you think it's going to be great. It's time to retire. And then suddenly COVID hits, or things crash. Suddenly you lose a third of that, and you realize you might have to work longer. Change diapers all day long, what seems like 100 diapers, moms. You get very little sleep. And then, oh joy, you get to get up tomorrow and do it all over again and again and again. And it's exhausting. Sometimes even for dad, it can get exhausting. You exert every effort into your children, your grandchildren, but then you have to watch them make the same mistake after mistake that you taught them not to do. You put all this effort. You build a company. You work to gain a position in a company. And then you sometimes have to sit and just watch it fall away. Somebody else gets that position. You get demoted. You have to move, take a lower paying job. You get fired. Your company is gone. People are experiencing that right now as their businesses have been shut down. Or just something as simple as, you know, you fill up your pantry with food every week and those teenagers come in and get it all. And it's empty again. And you have to fill it up. Every week, and every week, and every week, and on and on and on. You exert every effort, and things just seem to be hard work week after week, day after day. By the way, Jesus had a similar question. 
He had a similar question in Mark 8.36. He said, for what does it profit a man? See, he's very similar there. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We work so hard. We want to get more and more and more. Maybe we can take a break if we just get enough. And there's no end to it. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. And Jesus says, even if you have the whole world, it doesn't mean anything if you've given up your soul, if you've forfeited your soul. So what a question here that he asked to start off the book. I mean, we're only three verses in, and he throws out this huge question, and he doesn't even answer it for us in chapter 1 at all. He just throws out a question. He just poses a question for us to consider. And so some people will look at this and say, well, the answer is nothing. There is no advantage. There's nothing at all. Many commentators will say the rest of this passage here just tells us that there's nothing to look forward to. Just get up each day and be pessimistic and think that life has nothing of value. Well, like the commentator Walt Kaiser, he's kind of fiery like Martin Luther. Here's what he says. Unfortunately, that same majority of commentators incorrectly answer that the gains and advantages or profits were simply nothing. They think that hevel means that everything is so empty, so absurd, so meaningless, that the only proper response to the rhetorical question here is a completely negative answer. What a conclusion for a divine revelation from God. He's being sarcastic. What a conclusion. If this were so, perhaps the book should have stopped right at this point, don't you think? If that's all he has to teach us, there's nothing that matters. If there's nothing to do in this life that actually benefits, then let's just stop right here. The book's three verses and we can move on. But there's more. And he's going to make us hang on the hook for a while to figure out what that is. Remember, Hevel is better understood as a fleeting vapor. And if we put that in here to verse 3 here and think about that, the question becomes, if everything in life is so temporary and does not last, what does anyone get for all their hard work? See, that's a different question than saying, if life is meaningless and empty and vain, then what's the point? But we're not saying that. We're saying because life is short, we ought to stop and ask, what advantage is there in doing this thing that I'm doing? What advantage is there in working here and doing this? Is there an advantage? Is there a gain from it in this life? So he'll give some answers later. But for now, God's working through Solomon here and he just wants us to think. To think. Think about creation. Think about the curse. Think about man's striving on the earth. What's that all about? And it points us back to Genesis. And it makes us realize God is good and he created everything good. And we ruined it. We brought that upon ourselves. Adam and Eve, of course, we would have done the same thing in their position. And since then, we continue to do the same thing, don't we? Most of our problems and troubles come from our own choices, our own mistakes. Sometimes they're imposed upon us. Sometimes nature imposes things upon us. God's design, of course. But we just keep on making the same mistakes, being unwise. So he just poses the question, what's the point of striving and toiling? What's the point of working so hard for this thing or that thing, or that thing in your life? Is it worth it? And instead of answering, he goes into two reasons to ask the question. That's the second thing we'll consider here. He just backs up. He just underscores the reason that he asked in the first place. 
Maybe some people look at that and say, come on, so pessimistic. You got to be an optimist, Solomon. God is here to bless us. Just look at Abraham. That's what some churches will say. They'll say, just look at Abraham. He was blessed. He had a thousand camels and 20,000 sheep and all this gold. If you follow God, you'll be like Abraham. Abraham never had any problems, did he? He did have some problems. The Apostle Paul never had any problems, did he? He had a lot of problems. He wrote about them. He lost his head. That's a huge problem right there, isn't it? Jesus never had any problems, right? The Son of God. He had problems because he was living in the flesh. He was living in human form upon the earth. And the effects of sin and sinful people ended up killing him. So he didn't sin, but there were effects of others desiring his death, persecuting him, killing him. So Solomon's going to justify the reason he even asked this. He's going to prove to us that it's a valid question for a follower of God. It's not the question so much that gets us into trouble sometimes, it's the answer. Now there are some questions we shouldn't ask of God. That would be sinful, but there are other questions that are okay to ask and you see them in the Psalms over and over. But it's the answer that we come up with that really matters. If we get the wrong answer, then we're going to live an ungodly life. Because if nothing matters, if we adopt this philosophy of nihilism that nothing matters, it's all meaningless, then we'll just go have fun. Just go live it up. Drink and eat and party because tomorrow we die. Now Solomon will talk about drinking and eating and enjoying that, but he doesn't say do it just because tomorrow we die. You do it because it's a gift from God. So two reasons that he asked the question in the first place. That's the rest of this passage. And he will answer it, giving some examples that we're all familiar with. Things that have already occurred, things that are happening now. He uses language in this book that puts it on the level of real life. He doesn't go theological, although that's fine. I like theology. He paints a picture for us and expects us to see the theology from that picture. So the first reason, he says, is the natural world. Verses 4 through 7, he's saying, just look at the natural world. You'll get a glimpse of how short-lived your life really is. You'll get a glimpse of how you're a vapor. You'll get a glimpse of how fast you come and go. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes. That's how he starts it. In case you were wondering why I asked this question, a whole generation comes and goes, just like that. In the world right now, 151,600 people die each day around the world. More are being born. That's why the population grows. Praise the Lord. Although we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how many are being killed in the womb. 151,600 people die every day around the world. 7,452 people die every day in the United States. That's someone dying every 12 seconds. Every 12 seconds that we sit here, someone is dying. That's how fast that it happens. You come and you go. Life's too short to, to enjoy the fruit of our labor, she's saying. If you think it's all about this life now, forget about it because it's too short to even enjoy the things you work for. That's not pessimism, that's realism. He's hinting that there's something beyond 
under the sun. But like any good writer of wisdom, he's going to delay that until later in the book. But, so here's the contrast. We're here and gone, but the earth remains forever. The verb there is really stands forever. The earth stands. We move, we come and go. We're always coming and going generation after generation. But the earth, this rock we stand on, is always there. It remains forever out into eternity future. Now you think, well, that's not true. The earth's going to be destroyed someday. Yeah, but what's going to happen to it? It's going to be remade so that we live on it as believers into eternity. So there's always going to be this thing called earth, the planet that we live on. And God has designed the earth to continue to exist. It's not transitory. It's not fleeting. He's contrasting the earth with our life here. And again, this is designed. This is designed. Even though the earth is under a curse and that we have to work it and it's not going to yield its produce easily, God still designed the seasons. He still designed everything that we see in the sky, all the things that happen. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14. Genesis 1, 14. We'll just keep a bookmark there because we're going to get back there again. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Talking about the sun, the moon, the stars. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. You see that? There's seasons. There's signs. There's, there's what seems to be a change, but it just rotates back around, doesn't it? Seasons start over again. And it was so. So, in, in verse, sorry, verse 15. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. Billions and billions of stars. One little phrase there. He made the stars also. No big deal. He just threw out some stars everywhere. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern. This is the idea they oversee. They govern the day and the night. How do we tell time? From the sun. From the rotation. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening. There was morning. A fourth day. Even after the flood, go to Genesis 8.22. God says to Noah, he makes a covenant with Noah. And this is the covenant that all other covenants after that will be founded upon. Because it's stabilization. Genesis 8.22, it's saying that the world will be stable enough that people will populate it after the flood. And all the promises he gives to Abraham and David will be based upon the fact that the earth is not going anywhere. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. It's going to be there. The earth is permanent, but we're not. That's the contrast here. The earth is not God. We don't worship the earth. Some people do, but we should never do that. But God created it to last. He did not create us to last. He did not, since the fall, allow us to live much past 100 years if we get that far. But the earth continues on uninterrupted. You can't interrupt the spinning of the earth. You can't interrupt the seasons. Dwayne Garrett says we're like ants on a rock. We leave no trace of having been here. 
The birth of one generation and the passing of another are just nature's cycles. It's just, we're here and we're gone. The earth continues on or passing away generation after generation. Then in verse 5, he turns to the sun. He says, look at the sun. Verse 5, notice the word also. He's continuing his contrast. But the earth remains forever. Also, all these other things remain forever. Also, he's not changing subjects. Some people think he's changing subjects here. And he's just talking about how exhausting the, the sun is exhausted every day. The wind is exhausted. The water is exhausted. Just look, everything's exhausting. Give it up. He's not saying that. Also, just like the earth, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again. A little bit of uh, figurative language here with the word hastening. It means panting. The idea is the sun is panting to finish the race every day. He's running a race. He's like a sprinter. And he runs across the sky. And then he goes underneath where we can't see him, and he comes back again. It's an intended destination that God has designed for. We think things are changing because the sun is going across the sky, but guess what? Next day, back there again. Next day, back there again. It just keeps on going. It keeps on going. We have to look at Psalm 19. God designed the sun to do this. He put it in place. It's meant to glorify Him. You know, Solomon's not mentioning God here at all. But the idea is that someone's running this whole thing. It's set up to run a certain way. And that being God, implied here, God is running the universe. Providentially upholding it. Psalm 19 is more explicit here. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. So everything in the sky tells us something about God. The glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. It's telling us there's a creator. And look how beautiful he made it. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Every day, every night, whatever's changing in the sky teaches us to glorify God because he created it so beautifully, so wonderfully. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. They don't speak to us. The stars don't talk. The sun doesn't talk, but it teaches us something. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Everyone sees this. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. There's a tent for the sun. And he's put the sun there. The sun is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. So when the sun comes up, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. So he's running his course. Just like Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes, he's panting to run his course. It's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Sun comes up, does exactly what God wants it to do, and it goes down and it comes up again. And he says, we're not like that. We're not like that. Now go to verse 6. He talks about the wind. Let me translate it literally so you can get more of the sense of the wording here. Going to the south and turning around to the north, Turning around, turning around, the wind is going, and on its rounds, the wind returns. You hear that there? It's just going around and around and around. This is not to teach us that life is monotonous. We're like a hamster on a wheel, just run around, run around. It's a contrast to who we are. We think the wind is changing, but it really just comes back around, doesn't it? 
It's just going around on a circuit and it comes back and it comes back again and it comes back again. The wind just keeps on going, keeps on going. No one tells it what to do. It just keeps on going. It's there, unlike us. We're here for a little while. Better take notice. Do you hear how the wind is unchanging in this verse? It comes and goes around and around, but it it doesn't disappear. The world appears to be changing to us, but we're just seeing a snapshot, aren't we? And in one sense, it is changing. But you know the saying, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. When you back out and get a big picture, like God's picture, it's always the same. Exactly as he designed it. Exactly. The earth changes, but it's really just staying the same. It just appears to change. Now, it's not infinite like God. It is a creation, but God has designed it to keep going. Water, verse 7. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. How could that happen? How could water just keep on running into the sea, but it doesn't fill up? That must be God doing that. Oh no, modern science tells us that's evaporation. Well, who designed evaporation? And let's not be anti-Semitic and think that the Hebrew people were too dumb to understand evaporation because he didn't explicitly mention the word here. Job 36, 27. Here's evaporation. The oldest book in the Bible. And they already understood it. See, we think we've really discovered something. For he draws up the drops of water. They distill rain from the mist, which the clouds pour down. They drip upon man abundantly. You hear that evaporation? He draws up the water, and then it comes out of the clouds. Oldest book in the Bible. Job already knew about that. Isn't it amazing, creation? What we can learn from creation? When I saw the rings around Saturn through a telescope, that's amazing. That's mind-blowing. You show your kids that, they're just, wow, bright rings. The Orion Nebula, a spiral galaxy. God has designed the universe to run and glorify Him in everything it does. Amos 5.8 He who made the Pleiades and Orion. Those are constellations. The Bible's talking about constellations and changes deep darkness into morning and who also darkens day into night. God controls all of these things. He calls for the waters of the sea and he pours them out on the surface of the earth. Again, evaporation. He's calling up the water from the ocean and pouring it out. The Lord is his name. Job 38 again. Job, this time chapter 38, verse 31. God's speaking to Job. Job wants a hearing with God and he finally gets it. But God does all the talking. And God says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? That's a constellation that the ancients would see and look at. A cluster of stars. Can you bind those chains up there? Can you loose the cords of Orion, another constellation? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season? Can you make the constellations go across the sky, Job? Can man do that? Can you guide the bear or some major constellation with all her satellite stars? Can you make those things happen like God does? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Speaking of how God has set it up to run this way. Or fix their rule over the earth. They rule over the earth and the sky. Can you do that? We think we're special. We've created the atomic bomb. We've gone to the moon. God says, okay, move the constellation. Make the sun come up. Make it get dark. 
So with these ideas here, Solomon, with the idea of the sun and the wind and the water, he, he's not making the point that life is a treadmill. He's not saying we're hamsters on a wheel, but he's saying that's different than who we are. We're here and we're gone. Those things remain. God designed them to remain. He set it up that way. That's what's a little bit frustrating to us in Solomon is that here the things that were made for us are still there when we die. Even the church father Jerome said, the earth, which was made for humans, stays. But humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into dust. This has always been known. The earth remains. Even in Peter's day, the apostle Peter said that people were misusing this truth. There were mockers, false teachers. They were saying, where's the promise of his coming? When's Jesus coming back? Tell us that. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And they knew in general revelation that the earth is here and will continue. But they didn't understand special revelation that we're supposed to have hope in Christ. So because of the fall into sin, curse is upon us. Yes, it makes it harder to get things, to get work done. But the earth still remains. We're here. We're gone. So that's his proof. Second reason, human history. He says, that if that's not enough for you, if you don't like nature, if you're not a scientist, maybe you don't love those things. But let's look at human history. I'll prove it to you from human history. Verses 8 through 11, he says, All things are wearisome. All things are exhausting. All things just go and and, and in our lives and, and they just are exhausting. There's toil, there's striving. He's going back to what he asked in verse 3. What's the advantage? What's the advantage under the sun? He says, because human history proves this is a valid question to ask. This is valid. All things are wearisome. And he talks about three human limitations right here. We try and try and try. We exhaust ourselves. The rest of verse 8. Man is not able to tell it. Like Job found out when God spoke. Come on, Job, answer me, he says. God says, answer me. Can you do all these things? Do you know? Do you have that kind of wisdom? What did Job say? I shut my mouth. I get in my dust and ashes. I have nothing to say, God. You're right. I wanted a hearing with you. I can't even speak the words that need to be spoken according to your wisdom. Our words fall short. That's why we need to be quiet and listen to God's word. Because we, we don't have all the words. We can only study it and try to teach others and point to it. But these are his words. Our words fall short. And he goes on to say that the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Our eyes and our ears, we search for something new. Everything is so wearisome. We have to work hard. It's hard work. Let's get something a little fresher, a little newer, a little more appetizing, a little more appealing. He says it doesn't matter. You can never see all that you want to see, whether it's creation or sinful things even. Nor is the ear filled with hearing. You can never hear. You can never get all your senses fully exhausted. You can't take in all that God can take in. We fall short. All things are wearisome. You, you try to speak and describe all the things. 
And if you're like me, you just get worn out from talking. Especially if you're more introverted like me, you just really get worn out from talking. You, you can try to take in entertainment and waste your time, but eventually you just get worn out from that. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be. It's always been like this. It always will be like this. That which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Probably the most famous phrase right there from Ecclesiastes. Even unbelievers know that. There's nothing new under the sun. Not really anything new. We look for things new. We want some excitement. We don't want to look to God for anything new. We want to look to the world for things new. Under the sun, we're looking, we're looking. There's nothing new, he says. The same sun rose on Adam. It rose on Noah, Abraham, David, Jesus. The sun's still there. It's not new. The stars are still there. The earth, the wind, the water, everything's still there. What are you looking for? And then he poses the question because he knows us. And we're going to say there is something new. We've advanced in human history. We've discovered new things. We've created new things. Okay, verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new. See, 3,000 years ago, he already knew what you were going to think, right? And and Paul said something about the, the people in Athens. When he went to visit there and he was preaching to the Stoics, the philosophers, the men who supposedly had the greatest minds of their age. In Acts 17, 21, it says, in parentheses here, Luke writes about this. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there, so people came from around the world to hear these guys talk. They used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. What's new? What's the new idea you've come up with? Explain it. Teach it. There's got to be something new you've discovered. And so I think Luke is trying to make fun of them a bit there, just saying it's, it's man striving after wind. Maybe he just got done reading Ecclesiastes when he wrote Acts 17. Well, here's Solomon's answer. When you say, see, there's something new, he says, already it has existed for ages, which were before us. It's already up. It's already been done. Each generation tries to reinvent the wheel. But we're really just picking up things we forgot about in the past or moving maybe something a little inch further. We didn't come up with a new concept, really. We can't because God's only created so much. He's only created so much wisdom and so much matter that we can absorb. And so we're just moving things along or forgetting something in the past and rediscovering it. Dr. Barrick in his commentary mentions pregnancy tests. We think, oh, it was the 1900s and hormones. He said, no, the Egyptians 3,000 years ago would have their women urinate on barley versus wheat. And whatever happened to that would tell them if it was a boy or a girl. Amazing. C.S. Lewis used to talk about this phrase, chronological snobbery. That we don't want to read anything old, we just want to read something new. And he advised mixing up old and new, but it also applies to science, medicine, all these things. We think, you know, we're the most sophisticated people ever. If anybody's going to really make something of ourselves, it'll be us, this generation. How's that working out? You know, they thought that right before World War I. The Industrial Revolution, we have all these machines and factories, we can produce all these, all these weapons. Nobody's going to attack each other because they've got machine guns, which is just an automated rock thrower. You know, with a little bit more power behind it. It's nothing new. They used those things to wipe out half of Europe. Then World War II came along, and it was even worse. Man killing man. Is that something new? 
Dr. Barrick says each generation automatically assumes that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents lived in a backward age without the benefit of the advances of the most recent times. Oh, look how new things are. Let's try a new form of government. Let's try socialism. That's, that's never been tried before, right? This time we'll do it. We're so medically advanced and a little tiny virus shows up. Changes the whole world, doesn't it? We're so medically advanced. Yeah, we have discovered things. We've pushed our knowledge a little bit here and there. Sure, but the concepts have always been around. Well, look, they built the pyramids. Yeah, we can't figure out how. Still debating that. Now people say aliens built it. They just give up trying, right? Stonehenge, they don't know how they move those rocks so far. These are ancient peoples. They don't have technology, according to our view. Oh, here's a good one. We have a new way of doing church. This is not your grandpa's church. We hear that sometimes in certain places. It's not your grandma's church. Well, I just want Jesus' church because he was around 2,000 years ago and set up the church. There's nothing new under the sun. Generations come, generations go. Most cultures don't even remember their own history. You've heard the phrase, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Cicero in Roman times, before the birth of Christ, he said to be ignorant of what occurred before you were born is to remain always a child. Another person said the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. That's all Solomon is saying here. It's already been done. It's already been done. You think we're advanced scientifically. Thomas Edison said his inventions were only bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them for the happiness of mankind. It was just seeing something in nature that somebody else hadn't seen and then applying it. But it wasn't new. He didn't create the thing in nature. The emperor Marcus Aurelius wrote, the people who come after us will see nothing new. And they who went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. There's nothing new under the sun. The poet Rudyard Kipling, he said, the craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new. John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. Pilgrim's Progress. All these things we think that are new. Man, I can't believe this guy did this. It's all been there. It's all been there. Steve Lawson, I love it when he says this. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. We've got to beware of the, the new dazzling thing. I want something new. I want something great. I want this new job. That'll change everything. Maybe it's godly. Maybe it's right. But we have to be careful, don't we? Because Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Maybe I'll move to this new town and that'll, that'll really take my life to the next level. This new state, this new country, a new house. Then I'll never move again, right? Because everybody moves five to seven years. We get a new house. A new relationship, maybe that'll do it. I'll get married, I'll be single, I'll end the marriage, start afresh. Right? God just wants me to be happy, people say. It's not right. Maybe I'll just get more money and make more money and then I'll be happy. Nothing new under the sun. Maybe I'll just get caught up on all the things around the house and I'll save enough money to have kids or I'll, I'll have some quiet around the house someday when the kids leave. doesn't happen. David Gibson in his commentary, Living Life Backwards, says, when you think that at last you've made a decisive change in your circumstances, you will soon want to change something else. Whatever it is you think you've gained, it will soon vanish from the earth like morning mist and you along with it. One day you'll be dead and gone and the world will go on and probably without even remembering you. A hundred years after your death, the changes, no one will ever know that you lived. Sounds depressing. Well, it depends on where you're going after death, doesn't it? Because if you're going to the place where Christ is, wow, what a blessing. Verse 11. So he's talked about nothing new under the sun. Stop looking for things new. That's not where the advantage lies. 
And in verse 11, just in case you weren't tracking with him or didn't believe him, he says, there's no remembrance of earlier things. This really should be translated earlier ones or former ones. Talking about people. It's in masculine plural in Hebrew, and that's always used for people. Things are usually in the feminine gender. It's former people. And also, the latter people, the latter ones, which will occur. People don't even remember the past. Can you remember your great-great-grandfather? What was his name? And even if you looked up the genealogy, what did he do for a living? What kind of decisions did he make? Where did he mess up? Where did he succeed? We'll be forgotten. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Nothing lasts. So we have to decide how much we're going to exert into this thing that we're working on, isn't it? This job that we have. How much effort are we going to put into cleaning the house? It needs to be clean, but how much effort? How much work? How much exertion is this worth? Is it worth working 60 hours a week on? 80 hours a week? Letting our family sacrifice when we work 100 hours a week? Because, you know, God wants us to work hard, doesn't he? At the expense of your family? Of your spiritual life? Is that what God wants? Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. But we, who are we? We're like dust. We're like dust, that psalm says. We spend our lives trying to better everything. But Solomon's saying, it's nothing new. You'll be forgotten. That, the point in this life is not to make a name for yourself. The point in this life is not to make a ton of money. The point in this life is not to become famous so that people will remember you. That's not the point. Is this a contradiction to the gospel? Is this a contradiction? Is he being depressing here? Well, it is depressing. It's the bad news. It's only depressing because of our, our sin. Sometimes we don't want to see the truth. But actually, it's the need for the gospel that is showing here. We'll stop here with Solomon and we'll go to something Jesus says. Because Solomon's going to take a long time to get to the point. He's a good wisdom preacher. Jesus, just right to the point. Jesus is a good preacher too. But he's not writing a wisdom book. When he teaches, Matthew 6, 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Well, that would sound depressing if you love things of the earth, right? Where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy. And where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Work is good. God told us to work, providing for your family. Paul says, if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But there's a point. There's a limit. We have to watch out. We have to be careful. Because the advantage in this life is not found in making more money. Because there's a limit to what we need. It's not found in having more things, making a name for ourselves, building these great wonders of the world. Let's go to one more verse. You got to see this one for yourself and we'll close here. Luke 12, Luke 12, 13, turn there. So here's a man who thought money was important. Things were important. He thought he could get enough so that he'd have to work so hard and toil and labor and strive under the sun. 12, 13 of the Gospel of Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Give me my due. I want to go live it up. I want to enjoy 
the inheritance that my father wanted me to have. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? It's not my job. I'm not a judge. But then he goes on and uses this as a teaching moment. Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So what if you make all the money that you wanted? You hit your goals. If you don't use them the right way, it doesn't matter. Because that's not your life. That's not your treasure. Verse 16, he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The problem wasn't his money. God blessed him with all that produce. The problem really wasn't even his barns. God blessed him with the ability to build bigger barns. The problem is, he thought, this is mine. Now I can take it easy. Now I've got it made. I've made something for myself. The problem is he wasn't rich toward God, which is giving us a hint where Solomon's going to go in Ecclesiastes. See, it's not life under the sun that matters most, but it's what God wants us to do who's above the sun. There's no hope in finding ultimate gain or satisfaction from what you do in this life. There'll be some good things along the way and we're to enjoy them. We'll get to that in chapter 2, but that is not the ultimate. We're just here for a minute. We're just here for a second, then we're gone. There's something more important than life under the sun. That's eternal life, storing up treasure in heaven. So let's think about that as we ponder our own lives and how much we labor and work. Lord, we do thank you for this lesson this morning, this teaching from Scripture that's proclaimed. We're thankful that Christ has come, that he will save his people, that he will create a new earth someday when he returns, and we won't have to toil and labor. Work will be easy. Work will be as it's designed to be. But until then, Lord, help us to remember to store up treasures in heaven. Help us to remember that we're only here for a while. This is not our ultimate place of existence. But you have something better in mind for your people. And I pray that we would remain faithful and continue to ask, what would God have me do with this situation, with this money, with this task, with this work? We pray that you would help us in the name of Christ. Amen.